You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this The is Hour. The You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour, RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. I'm Martha, producer of The Hour, here to guide you through this month's episode. On this month's edition, we'll look back at Resident Advisors 24-7 party, which took place at London's Fold nightclub in December. In addition to 24 hours of music, we also held a full day of workshops and interviews in partnership with CDR, in an underground room below Fold's main dance floor, decked out as a greasy spoon cafe. Throughout this episode of The Hour, you'll hear some of the highlights from those discussions, including LB and Debonair talking about pirate radio, as well as Steffi Allett of Manchester's Meat Free Collective chatting to Soraya Brewer about how to put on a techno party. First up, RA's editor-in-chief, Aaron Coultate, caught up with RA's head of events, Ryan Miller, on the Monday after the 24-7 party took place to reflect on how it all went down. I'm sitting here with RA's head of events, Ryan Miller, uh, a couple of days after our 24-7 party at Fold in London. Hi, Ryan. Hello. How are you feeling? A little bit tired. Got like a bit of a cold that I've developed from working about 40 hours over the weekend, but um, incredibly happy about how, how everything went. Uh, well, why don't we start by you telling us a bit about your role uh, at RA, what it involves, and the 24-7 concept in general. Yeah, for sure. So um, I've been working at Resident Advisor for about four years now, and my role is anything that happens in a real life space, I have something to do with and I oversee it and help it come to life, whether or not that's working with you and the editorial team on live our exchanges um, or things with the brand partnerships teams or I curate the festival stages. Um, yeah, at the moment I'm a team of one, so it's quite a lot of work, but I get to curate stages at some of the most interesting venues, festivals uh, and events all around the world. Um, with artists that I truly believe in, so it's an incre- yeah, it's a really fun job to do. So before London, where has the twenty four seven series uh, taken you? So we started in two thousand and eighteen. Um, the event went to Berlin, Bogota, Melbourne, Tbilisi, New York, and Milan. And how long has the London twenty four seven party been in the works? At the beginning, we were planning on doing, we were planning on kicking off the series in London because it's our home turf and it's in a very important city to us all. Um, but unfortunately, we just couldn't find the right venue. The costs were spiralling and we just felt that if we're doing this event in London, we needed to do it justice and we didn't want to do it unless it was the exact vision that we had for the concept. Um, and throughout the course of 2018, we explored a bunch of options and Fold opened and presented itself. And we felt like that was somewhere where we had a lot of scope to do something really creative and really interesting if we could tweak a few things about the space and figure out a few finer details. Um, and they were up for it. They'd, they'd done a couple 24-hour parties. Um, they do them every now and then. So they had the right license for it, which made it 10 times easier. Um, but we knew that if we were going to do this, we had to do something different to what they normally do, which is when we started talking about the additional spaces. We're talking about studio spaces, lift spaces, room twos. 
and um and bringing a program that they don't really do down at fold very often in terms of mixing drum and bass garage techno house uh and blog house all under one roof well i you know we had talked about the the plans for the party and um in writing i knew what you were planning but actually walking into fold last saturday and seeing um the space transformed it, it was really quite a remarkable experience to be honest and Aside from the main room, why don't you talk us through the other spaces that we utilised um, for the event and um, how you program those? Yeah, of course. So we had the main room, which is, you know, if you've ever seen a f the rare photos of Fold, that would be the photo you would have seen. It's a nice square room, nice function one sound system. Um, but the, the building in which Fold is housed is an old printing facility. And across this whole space, there's like six or seven rooms that we could access for this event so what we did was we've been working with them for a while and they were t they'd told us that we could open up a second almost second main room out the back and then within the complex we found that there was a industrial elevator and we could use that to put a little dj booth in and then just near the main room within fold there's a run of five recording studios one of which has got more modular gear than you've ever seen in your life it's like a space station one of which is housing a little radio station that they stream from every now and then and two of them are just kind of like chill out spaces for the the team that work there so it took a little bit of convincing but they allowed us to turn one of the studios into what was essentially a fake bathroom with turntables and a massive rig in it and then we took the elevator shaft around the corner and put a DJ booth in it and asked DJ bus replacement service and the HMT hard crew to DJ in that, which again had a ridiculously oversized rig. And then we wanted to have a space where we could build a Greasy Spoon Cafe to house talks. One of the things that we think is really important for 24-7 is that the exchange program that we do is kind of a bit silly, kind of a bit fun. And if you've been at a party for 15 hours and you've got someone talking about pirate radio anecdotes, you know, it should be a laugh. Um, we'd looked at doing a container in the garden then there was a tent and we had explored a bunch of options but fortunately we managed to find another space which was an old office which is on the ground floor and uh, yeah we turned that into a greasy spoon cafe just very red lights and tablecloths and stuff like that and with ketchup and mustard everywhere. So the event started at midday on Saturday and um, finished at midday on Sunday could you give us a bit of a glimpse into how those 24 hours unfolded for you personally? Yeah, of course. So I was at the venue um, at 8 a.m. with the production team, uh, the sound team, which had been there from the night before, um, the builders who had been working for two weeks in two separate shifts, a day team and a night team, which tagged in and tagged out. So the building never stopped. Um and yeah, by the time the doors rolled around, you know, we had the welcome committee who were giving people tea bags and bananas and everyone as they came in. Um, and I just found myself floating around. Obviously, I was very fortunate in that we had all the RA crew on board. We had this crazy big crew. We had a bunch of artist liaisons. We had the vibe detectors in the main room that were and the other rooms that were keeping, you know, making sure everything was running smoothly there. So my role is just kind of cutting around the place, making sure everyone's happy, happy frantically checking my phone for various WhatsApp messages that are coming in left, right and centre um, and just kind of overseeing everything, um, whether or not that means I need to run into the main room and stick new gels on a window or whether or not I need to run to room two and help the sound system crew. Um, it's a combination of things really. So it's a bit manic for 24 hours. What kind of things went wrong on the day? To be honest, we were quite fortunate in that there was no major issues. Um, 
The funniest thing that happened was about 1 a.m. when the way that the tickets worked meant that the, the second allocation for the night, a lot of people turned up around 1 a.m. And it was all a bit hectic on the door, but we were getting people in pretty smoothly. And then one crew kind of rolled through. One girl was wearing a T-shirt that had security written on it. And then the girl who was with her started claiming to be object to the security guards who didn't know what was going on. I was then like, hang on a minute, you're not object. And then she was like, no, no, we're just with object's team, I think. And then someone claimed that they were private security. And then I kind of ushered them away and was like, come on, this the door's crazy right now. Let's just put you out. I'm, I'm afraid you just can't come in right now. This is just isn't true. You're obviously not object. And then I went back inside. A few hours later, someone runs down. One of the doormen's, doorman runs up to me and he's like, yo, so one of the staff came out the front here and just said that TJ is actually DJing right now and he forgot to put them on the guest list. Uh, so we've let them in. And then that transpired to also be completely untrue. And the staff member was just a random friend who just blagged it big time so yeah they won that battle fair play i mean it's so brazen you've um, yeah you got to pay tribute to that <laughs> it's pretty funny to be fair yeah um and you know london is not a city where 24-hour parties are an easy or, or, or common thing um so how do you get this kind of event uh approved by you know the relevant authorities well it's just one of those things where you just need to the the venue is so important and the space they need to have a good relationship with local authorities in the first place fold has a number of 24-hour licenses that they're allowed to do per year and they were happy to give us one of those licenses so that made things a million times easier knowing that it was it was almost taken care of obviously later down the line we were hit with certain issues with fold but um generally speaking that side of things was pretty seamless when we were looking at doing it at external venues that's when you're talking about multiple temporary event notices and and things get super super complicated so much so it's borderline impossible and obviously there was um in the lead up to the event um some question marks over whether fold would even be allowed to operate for the um for the party um you know, were you any stage worried that the event wouldn't take place? And um, what what uh, is the kind of plan B in that kind of scenario? Yeah, like, you know, um, the fold team are great and the fold team are working so hard to get the space in a place that they were happy with for 24-7. You know, we're talking about multiple rooms that they'd never done before. Um, and when we were hit with, when everyone was hit with the initial round of news um, and the license was suspended, you know, all that building work had to stop for two weeks. And then they had the appeal, they got the license back, everything kicked back in. There was definitely huge question marks over whether or not it was going to take place. But fortunately, the team, you know, they've got a good legal team. They were they were prepared for the situation if it had, ever did come. And um, and yeah, they, they kept in touch with us the whole time. The information that they gave us led us to believe that everything was going to go ahead as planned. And it did. And you can see, you know... That's often the case with events, you know, things go to the wire and you just have to be prepared to hold your nerve and see it out. And uh, and when it comes off, it properly comes off. And next thing you know, it's midday and you've got a vodka and orange juice in your hand. So where exactly were you when midday rolled around on Sunday and how were you feeling? With a vodka and orange juice in my hand. Um, stood on the dance floor, you know, the way that we uh, had the rooms, the final two hours the main room was the only thing that was open. And what was so good was just looking around the scene. Majority of the DJs that had played were still there. All the crew that were working on the event were there. All the RA staff were there. A bunch of different people in the crowd. It was such an amazing vibe. The windows had the multicolored sunlight coming through. 
it's it's difficult to kind of like take in at that point because you're like we've been talking about this for so long and now it's here and it's about to finish and i can finally relax and it's just about to be over um but yeah it's just a sense of like nice work everyone like we pulled together we did this um on to the next one i guess and what are the plans for 24 7 so I think we're not we're going to try and take it to cities where we feel like it's going to be something that will have s- serious contribution to the local scene there. When we did it in Tbilisi, you know, it's the first time a 24-hour event had ever happened in Tbilisi uh, legally. Maybe some stuff, I'm sure some other stuff happened. Um, so at the minute we're talking with the club in Kiev, which could be really fun. And then there's also another venue in Germany that um, I probably can't talk about just yet because it's always just planning, uh, but it's not in Berlin. I'll say that much. How many people um, are you aware of that lasted the whole 24 hours? So in the crew that were working on it, I mean, when you start talking, like the sound engineer was there from Friday evening until I don't even know what time on Sunday. And then you've got various members of the RA crew that got there bef- got there around the same sort of time that I did and were still there on the dance floor at the end talking about who's going to have the after party. So I was incredibly impressed by a bunch of the RA crew. Um, yeah, shout out to Connor and James. I'll give them a shout out. And what were your personal highlights of the party? Personal highlights? Wow. Um, I think walking around and seeing hmt crew playing in the lift area playing some crunk gabba reggaeton combination of sounds and everyone going absolutely mental um it was just one of those things where you're like what on earth is going on i love this this is absolutely bonkers um that was a big highlight and then also you know we put we put together the program essentially around two artists those artists are fabio and the contribution that he's had to London rave culture is, you know, nothing comes close. And Leif, who on a completely other end of the spectrum, but he's an artist that I've seen play a bunch of times. And and he was someone that you, you picture him and the vibe that he has at a certain time and you hear him play and you just think this at like the middle of the morning and a new room would just be bonkers. And then to have him come and do it after us, you know, he was the first artist that we booked. So to see him in the new booth on this insane Danley Audio sound system, um, yeah, that was that was a big highlight for me. And in addition to uh, Fabio's um, DJ set, he also did an interview in the Greasy Spoon area um, and him telling the story about when he first heard Never No More Lonely by Fingers Inc. Uh, nearly brought a tear to my eye. Um, it was that was like actually um, one of my personal highlights as well. Yeah, my little brother was watching that, and um, you know he's a music head, but not as much as say you and I. And he was just saying how you know how inspiring it is listening to Fabio talk about his life and music and the contribution that he's willingly given to like furthering the scene that now all of us are so fortunate enough to like exist in and do stuff in. Um, so yeah, you know Fabio is an absolute legend. So shout out to him. And I guess one of the question marks over the actual program for the party was the unannounced um, set that took place on Saturday night. Um, do you want to tell us about that? So with 24-7, we always have an unannounced guest play. In Berlin, it was Kerry Chandler. In New York, it was Fortet. And we wanted to do the same in London. We wanted it to be around midnight. So it was the, the you know 12 hours in, a really intense sound in that main room of folds. Um, we had someone booked and a week before there was a mishap and we figured out that they couldn't play anymore. So we had a week to figure out who we were going to book. 
Uh, I started scouring the internet, checking out artists, date schedules and stuff like that. And by some stroke of luck, Ben Clock didn't have a show on a Saturday night in December, which is insane. Um, and we dropped his agent a line and they really liked the idea of playing unannounced. Um, so he came through and he played unannounced. And I think people were like, what on earth is going on? That's Ben Clock. He's just, it was a, a minute ago, it was two bad mice. Um, how is Ben Clock now playing? And yeah, he, you know, he did his thing. It was nice seeing him, seeing him in a room of that size, which I'm sure doesn't happen very often nowadays. And uh, yeah, he was, he was great. He was really good. Nice one. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks to Ryan and Aaron. Next up, we'll take you inside the rave sharing highlights from a conversation recorded six or seven hours into the 24-hour party with Steffi, one member of Manchester crew Meet Free. Here's Steffi, interviewed by RA contributor Soraya Brewer. Are there any concrete tips that you would give? What can people proactively do um, to make their parties more inclusive without it being like tokenism? If it is a group of like four white guys promoting a party, they have to tread a lot more carefully because obviously the anything that they can do is going to be magnified if they make a wrong, you know, wrong choice or whatnot. But obviously you have to do your research and ultimately if, if the, the, the sort of genre of the party that's being booked, you can only there's only men who are playing that genre and there's like literally no women, then obviously he's going to fall in that direction. So I don't think we should be quick to always jump on people where there is just men on the lineup. But obviously it has to be, you know, if that's all they're doing all the time, then they're, they're you know, they're, they're fucking up a little bit because, you know, there's always going to be women that can fit on that lineup. Yeah, I just think you have to tread really carefully. You can't, like, you can't just book women because you think that will fix the solution. So um, I think, basically, I think the core principle is just to have cohesiveness. That's all your lineups need to flow. The night needs to flow correctly, you know, from start to finish. Um, about cohesiveness, I would like to rewind um, from gender balance to genre balance, because um, earlier on you were mentioning, obviously it's like leaning towards techno, but yourself, you are a very versatile DJ. Sure. Um, you play a lot of different stuff. Um, how do you find this balance in your, not only in your own sets, but also like throughout the whole night? How do, what, what constitutes a good lineup for you for Meet Free? Sorry, now I'm going off track with really That's long-winded cool. questions. And like other nights as well. What, what is a good lineup to you? I think like um, to not just have like, you know, uh, just using the example of like, if you're going to get three sort of techno, like Burgoyne techno DJs that all play the same vibe, obviously it's just going to be a bit... I mean, there are part. It does actually depend on the length of the party because you know, if, like in places like Scotland, where the you know literally all they have is like three hours to go mad, so three or four hours for for a night or whatnot. So you know, I think you can maybe put on two DJs of the same genre. But I guess Manchester were blessed a little bit because you know you can do like eleven till um, eleven till seven, eleven till eight. So we sort of just like to. I mean. Ultimately, now we are doing like more techno, just like out and out techno. We've sort of stopped experimenting as much, just in the last 12 months. But like, 
with the exception of last year, we did like Eri Strew, uh, like she did the warm up, and then uh, we had like um, Chem and then DVS one. So I think obviously just start things off a little bit. I think you can always do like the fruitier stuff at the start. Um, what will you say would be like one or two other things that you face as a promoter over the years, and what can you tell people to do to kind of avoid said challenge? Yeah, I think one of the big things is that it's um, in the UK, it's a very sp special scene. Um, for me, I feel like it's the most, I hate this word, but it's the vibiest scene. Um, everyone go, like everyone gets it, obviously like everyone sort of interacts differently on the dance floor. I always find particularly, I can speak from experience in Manchester, that's the, that's the way things go in for us that for me free but the the difficulty is when you're sort of booking european artists is that a lot of these european agents don't understand that it's a real struggle it's like we have the best crowds but it's like few and far between so it's like trying to get people that are like trying to get the european agents who don't and have not grown up in the uk to understand that we can't pay you know four thousand pounds for a 300 cap venue for an artist who, yeah, he's good, but he's not that good, you know. <laughs> like, so, yeah, I'm not prepared to, like, miss a payment on my rent to, like, you know... Yeah, ex well, yeah, my rent doesn't cost that much, but a contribution. Um, but, yeah, so I think it's... Yeah, that's a battle trying to get agents to sort of understand the scene in the UK and, you know, sort of get them to realise that, yeah, we can't pay that much, but they will come and they will have a really good time and they will have people reacting to the sets. Because, like, when you go... I think, like, when I've played in Berlin and stuff, like, people sort of really do feel the music more internally. Like, people just, like, really close their eyes and get into it and maybe don't scream and, like, shout and go, come on, like they would at Meet Free, like, oh, fuck off. Um, that's a term of endearment in Manchester. So, like, it actually is, like, really different. So, yeah, you just need to try and, yeah, I think you need to be persuasive with how you speak with agents. And, you know, luckily we're in that position where, you know, we've, we've proved ourselves now. But for um, up-and-coming up promoters, I think it's, yeah, you, you need to be persuasive and don't take no for an answer. Like, keep, you know, sometimes you have to keep going back to them. They'll be like, no, they're not playing for it. And you're like, well... You know, nobody else has offered to pay for them or, you know, um, bring them, sorry. So, yeah, you have to, like, be like a salesman in some respects. Yeah. Sell your party and why they should play. And even um, if we take one step back, um, where does one even start? If someone's thinking, like, I want to promote a party, want to organise a party with some mates, uh, want to book a DJ, like, where the hell... What's the, first, what's the first step that someone should take? It's really difficult. I think literally you need to hold out for the right venue like okay if you're cutting your teeth and you're doing a few residence parties do them in you know i think we all have those places in in our respective cities where you're like nah, don't like i would never go to that club like it's not they've just like they've fallen off or the sort of curation's not in line with your party it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad club in general, but for what you're pushing, if it's like, you know, you know it's like a, a sort of um, more of a studenty club, then stay away from it. Don't, you know, just hold out. It's, you know, it's, it's easier said than done, and I respect that, but, you know, yeah, ultimately hold out for that 
good place where you know that your music's going to be come across to the right crowd because like once somebody has a good time at your party that one party then they're more inclined to come to the next one but i think it is definitely goes deeper than just a party you have to have an ethos and it has to be you know i think we were definitely like it, we was a bit of a fluke with meet free as well it's like we definitely came together at a time where there was more sort of rhetoric about women in music so we were sort of like definitely have been sort of flavour of the month for a few months, more than we should have done. Um, so I also respect that. Um, but f yeah, I think just being very careful about where you put on your party and you do need to have like your, you know, you've just got to really know that if you, you know, it's so sad when I see and hear to promoters say that they've lost like a couple of grand and they've pulled, you know, 20, 30 people, but it's also, yeah, you do have to make those mistakes, but you shouldn't be making them more than two or three times. You've got Manchester on lock. What can you advise people who want to foster a community of, I don't want to say punters, but visitors, guests? Like, what tips can you give to upcoming promoters to create a community around them if people want to go to their party and come back? I, th I think you have. I think you have to also remove, like, because like some brands can be pretty f like faceless. So like, um, and that really says a lot. Because I think like even though like everybody sort of knows who we are in Manchester, they know us from some facet because like we're all like heavily involved in the scene through DJing, promoting. Like Alice, who after parties, yeah, um, <laughs> after parties are a really good way to sort of. I think actually probably one of. <laughs> yeah, one of the best ways actually is always to, if you're, I think if you want to sort of be, um, you want to have a presence in the scene, it's definitely important to, you do have to go to these after parties or at least turn up to the parties of other promoters because you won't get anywhere if you haven't got the support of the other promoters in the city. So that's one huge sort of, like uh, Tash actually started up Manchester techno promoters group does what it says on the tin it's just for all the techno promoters in <laughs> manchester but um it was sort of a a sort of way to sort of reduce clashes amongst everybody and it was this pretty much the first time that somebody had done that and sort of got everybody chatting so it was like we weren't all against each other we were just trying to like survive in this like competitive yeah. market but yeah if you want to get people to like to sort of be into what you're doing you need to go and spend time and pay for a ticket going to their party chat with them you know you'll quickly become friends because you're all there for the same reason um yeah i think that's really important just sort of get out there and meet people from your own scene putting on parties how many people you say the optimal amount of people behind a party would be like how many people you need an even numbers probably good um <laughs> just because then if there's like if it's like two against two like in meet free like we we love each other but we do wind each other up some at chronic sometimes um and it is hilarious we we all get on brilliantly but and we all realize that we've all got very important roles um so i think yeah, it can be extremely difficult because if one person's got like, there's you know, if there's one person with a very strong sort of like idea, mm -hmm. then yeah, it's, you know, it's very, it can be quite difficult. So I either think do it on your own because then it, nobody can take it, like everything relies on, you know, you to do that. And I think, you know, I, I know like 
neighbourhood, Tasha over there. She's a one-man band and she's been doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> Tasha. Um, so I would say that's a very good example of like doing it on your own and because, you know, she's got her own vision and she wants to do it her way. So, but then again, obviously we came, Meet Free came together and I don't, I genuinely don't think Meet Free would be a success if it wasn't um, for all four of us because we've all really got those strengths all different strengths, sorry. So, um, yeah, I think you just have to, you have to sort of foresee that, like, you're not always going to get on. So whoever you enter into, like, a, a party with, you need to either be prepared that, you know, you're going to have fallings out and you're going to sort of, you know, disagree. But then you have to, like, yeah, you have to realise that as long as your visions are all the same and one of you is just not trying to sabotage it, like, it ha does happen, then, yeah, you should be good, but... It's either, yeah, just tre tread very carefully. And uh, within the group, how do you divide roles and responsibilities? Who does what? Tasha's the most organised, so she's like the, the finance patrol. No penny gets past Tash. Um, and then, like, to be fair, like, some of us are, like, more involved than others, but it really works that way. Like, Lucy's, like, on, on the night, like, Lucy, as I mentioned, she's, um, she's, like, operations manager at School of Electronic Music, was, like, the equivalent of Point Blank. And, um, like, she's, like, she's really great at, like, solving tech issues. So, like, during the setup, like, we just let her set everything up. Um, pr she pretty much stays out of it, like, the rest of the time you know, puts her input in, but she's always there when we need her. Um, and then obviously, like, me and Tash also do curation, and then Alice looks after more, like, you know, uh, sorting out, you know, social media and sorting out, like, artwork and stuff like that, and also has a, a range of brilliant ideas of things that we should be doing, like, really that, we you know, we wouldn't think about. Um, like, Alice has done such a brilliant thing called um, Under One Roof, and it's pretty much one of the first... Uh, raves for learning disabled and she's rolled it out she's done incredible she's rolled it out across the whole of the UK and um, so like she sort of gives us more of a yeah she helps us with the cultural aspects of things and how you know how we should be participating in um, this like you know in the scene in Manchester not just for our sort of you know little section of society but the wider community that's actually a really interesting thing. What, what can promoters do to give back to the community? Um, I think, um, like, like initially, like, like with Alice, it did start as a meat-free thing, the under one roof, but she spearheaded it. But, um, yeah, DJ, like, you know, if you get asked to do things for charity and stuff, like, don't, you know, make sure you do it. Um, like, if it's, if it's warranted, you know, if it's for a legit cause. Sort of, I think also, you know, make sure you're supporting, like, you know, your local... Just make sure you're going out and attending the parties that, you know, make up your scene or supporting in any way you can. You need to do a lot of, like, cross-promotion for other parties. Like, you know, we often share, like, posts for other parties that are happening in Manchester at the, on, you know, over a weekend. We'll, you know, just give them a push because we've got, um, you know, we've like, lucky that we've got, you know, a, quite a big relatively big social media like following and stuff like that so yeah any little thing that you can do just show that you 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 know you're supporting the the wider scene um 
Yeah, I mean, we do like, you know, we've been asked to do, like, um, have sort of spearheaded some, uh, like, DJ classes for for women um, and stuff like that. So when you can give your expertise, then definitely try and give them and don't ever, you know, if, if you've got someone that's, like, younger than you or, or not even younger than you, but just somebody that wants to get into DJing or just know a little bit more, just make sure you give people the time to, uh, like, learn from you. It's mm -hmm. not, obviously, we're always really busy, but when people ask and they really want to learn, you should definitely be prepared to just give away 10, 20 minutes of your time yeah. and go through things. Just in case there's any aspiring female identifying DJs in the crowd who are like, oh, I really want to play Meat Free, what can they do to reach you? Literally, the most important thing to do is make sure that the mix you send to whoever the prospective uh, promoter is that you want to play for is just make sure that your music aligns with the brand because 90% of things that we get sent just don't and it's just crazy like um, you know people send like really chill sort of like Balearic type vibe mixes for like a full throttle techno party and that is I think you know it's like lounge music. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with this? Like, I want to put you on, I want to support, but it sounds like I'm in a lift. <laughs> so I think, like, the people really need to be, like, you need to hone in on what the parties you're playing, what's going to, like, you know, the mix just needs to be something that this party would, an artist that this party would book. So number one bit of advice, I think, for me, because every time we get a mix, we're just just like tearing our hair out like you know ha just nothing to it's like completely the opposite of what we would book so yeah. yeah and it's and it's a shame because we do want to support more people would love people to send in a mix and it to be absolute fire and for us to be able to you know to put them on that would be a dream actually Steffi had a question from the audience about how to cultivate a network of engaged ravers who actively participate in a scene that's in its infancy yeah, it's it's definitely trial and error, and I think we went through that where you go through that that period, and you're like, oh god, like literally nobody's getting it. Um, I think you have to just take it's it's really hard, but I always say start small, and that's what we did. So like, start with the pay what you want, where maybe you just get a residence vibe going, and people like people just used to come for for like a cheap residence party for us. And then off the back of it, we just sort of like built, we were able to then like take a risk and people followed. Um, I know that it's like not one size or one cap doesn't fit all like, do you know what I mean? It's like difficult. So, but I would definitely start small, as particularly for like a, a, a small scene like York. It might just be that it, you know, it's, there's always going to be that competition from Manchester. People could just get to Manchester as easily as they can from, you know, to York, uh, sorry, easier to get to Manchester than to go to York. And um, I would, I think if that was me, I'd focus more on like a resident, smaller artist vibe and get it going. And then, you know, maybe if that was what you wanted to do, you could, you know, branch out and maybe move to a bigger city if you felt like the art, because like ultimately you don't want to be fighting a losing battle. Like it's, you know, like maybe booking uh, like, I know Chester doesn't, for example, Chester doesn't have like the biggest scene. Um, you know, there's not a, a big sort of scene for techno there at all. So like to book a big DJ just wouldn't commercially be viable. And it's not always about that. So I think it would be best to like, yeah, build, build it from the ground up and make it about the residents and the, you know, like this, you know, 
people that you could book for like two or three hundred pound that would be so buzzing and grateful to play the party which would ultimately like contribute to the yeah to the party and the what you're about i think it would never be you know you could probably never for until like the scene fully develops maybe go for like bigger headliners for now yeah that would be my sort of advice on that one the audience asked for Steffi's favorite venue white hotel definitely yeah have to like rep it hard otherwise i won't get any dates next year <laughs> it's true it's like gold dust around there yeah, definitely. Uh, but Soup Kitchen's all also sick. It's a really good space. And then, like, Hidden is... Like, it has a different vibe, Hidden, but it's still good for what it does, definitely. It's, like, literally a five-minute walk down the road, if that, from uh, from the White Hotel. So that's definitely, like, a bit of a bigger-scale venue. But, yeah, we're, we're struggling. We're struggling for venues in Manchester. Like, there needs to be something else. Like, I actually just really love the in-house curation at the White Hotel, because uh, the guy who does it, Jacob, um, he, he runs the Project 13 parties, and, um, yeah, he, uh, like, his curation's on point. So, yeah, any time I've, like, gone out, it's, it's usually always at the White Hotel, sad to say. But, um, yeah, in Manchester, it's always been Project 13 for me that have been, you know, like, that are still around, actually. There's not many parties, sorry, in Manchester that have been around for so long. And, uh, yeah, they are one of them. And me and Jacob are pretty close, actually. So I have a lot of respect for what he's done with the White Hotel because he's took it from this, like, just outlandish space which didn't really have any rules and still doesn't to, to today as much. But he's sort of refined it and made it viable, actually, for a, you know, a club to sort of weather the storm in Manchester like they've done is really impressive, so I'll always have nothing but respect for them. Apart from that, other parties in the UK would be like Chapter 10, which um, I had the chance to play at, and like it's just genuinely one of the best vibes. Um, out and House of God in uh, Birmingham, which is the, I would say, the longest-running techno party in the world, actually. It's 27 years. Um, going strong and uh, yeah we're lucky to play for it two times and it's just like everybody's there um like that people that go have been there from the day off it's like sometimes not a full set of teeth in the house like because there's a few like a few dodgy ones at the back but um yeah it's absolutely incredible party i love it and um that has got to be probably one of the best parties in the uk for me I hope you enjoyed hearing from Steffi about how she runs Meat Free. We're diving deeper into the 24-hour party now to hear a conversation between Debonair and LB about Pirate Radio and London. Hello. Um, well, come on, come on through. It's all right to be late, but it's eight hours into the rave, so everyone's getting a little bit wavy, maybe. Yeah, today we're gonna talk about, have a little chat about something that's very uh, closely related to the underground UK rave scene, and that is pirate radio. Um, in this context, it refers to illegally hijacking a frequency on a traditional transistor radio. It first occurred in the 1960s, but it was the 80s when pirate radio became heavily associated with underground music by emerging from and serving hyper-local scenes. Um, and who better to guide us through this journey than one of the most important and enduring legends from the time, it's LB. What's up, guys? Blessed for coming. 
to thank you for those that don't know who the hell I am, yeah, and you just come along anyway. And thank you for those that do know who I am and you came to check me out because I'm actually here. So my relationship to Pirate Radio is probably not the best uh, person to talk to as far as being integrated. But mine's a nice one where it's different. It's a different perspective. It served a different use for me as a producer. So don't forget, LB's a producer. I get DJing work off of the back of the records that I produce. So first and foremost, I'm a producer. So what that meant was I didn't have to run after the pirate radio stations to get my name up. What pirate radio was to me was, I suppose the best way to describe it was like a beacon. Do you know what I mean? It was like a beacon showing me how well my tracks were doing. When they hit the road, who was playing them, what stations were playing them. So that's where it was important to me. It was, uh, it was like a beacon as to uh, my progress out there. It was like some kind of you know, indication as to how well we were doing, if I'd have actually started at all, really. Because I was aware of pirate radio stations from a young age, had my first record out when I was 15. Mate, okay, that so, is young. That yes, yeah, so like... Been busy. Yeah, so I'm fully aware of radio stations and didn't really have any need or want to revolve around them or be on a radio station by the time my first record hit the road. So, so that's what it was for me before. That's all it was to me before my record started coming out. So how did radio start off? Like, did you listen to radio when you were growing up? Yeah, yeah, it was really essential to me. Getting into music young, if it weren't for radio, if it weren't for, what did I used to listen to? Colin Dale. I used to be big into techno. Colin Dale was in charge in the UK here. It was Colin Dale and Colin Favor on Kiss FM in the mid 90s. And techno wasn't all Jeff Mills and like, you know, <laughs> wow, 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 wow. It was more constructive, it was more groovy, it was more like the US house stuff. If you know artists like Felix the Housecat and stuff like that, it was more like that. Not so aggro, not so noisy. Jeff Mills hadn't even come around at the time. So it was, you know, you could go to a techno rave, there's plenty of women there. It wasn't all grungy and sweaty and dark and uh, dungeony. It wasn't like that at all. Okay, and when did you first um, start listening to Pirates? Like, at what point? Were you already making records? Yeah, it was the Dale. It was hanging around with the Dale brothers. There was Colin on Kiss. There was Trevor, the older brother. There was a fantastic producer that kind of befriended my dad, and they got really techy together. And then there was the younger brother, Mark, um, who was my age. And we started hanging around, and he got me into the DJing thing and stuff. And then I suppose I came on my first record. Now, to get my first record out, my route was basically, in a nutshell, take demo tapes around. Give demo tapes to the most high-powered person I could reach. Groove Rider. I had drum and bass. I was doing some drum and bass. I was doing some techno. Give one to Groove Rider. Go down to Metalheads. Give them out to all the guys and stuff. Give one to Goldie. I was lucky enough to know Goldie personally because a good friend of mine is his keyboard player from the band back in the day, Justina Curtis. So she took me into the studio when he was making the Mother album. Got to meet, got, got to meet Rob Playford. David Bowie was there in the booth smoking 100 cigarettes and shit. It was crazy. <laughs> um, so all of this was like, was connect, connected me with the family, but they were not accepting my demo tapes at all. It was literally a case of, yeah, Nice one, L. I'll check it out in the car. I'll, go, I'll give it a listen later. <laughs> That's the end of it. That's all you would hear. That's all you would hear. So it's really useless, especially nowadays. It's even worse trying to suck up to guys. We used to call it kissing ass back in the day. I used to call it liaising. You know what I'm saying? Whatever you want to call it, 
it had to be done to a certain degree back in the day. I suppose you've got to reach out and connect everybody you can nowadays, but it's not the way to get things done. You've got to start your own smoke. You've got to start your own smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You've got to start your own flame. You've got to get something going. Even if your eventual destination is a major record label, they need to see that they can put a pound into you and make back free. That means that you've developed your own fan base. Something they can invest in, a commodity to them. There's no artist development deals no more and then that shit there. So that's that one in a nutshell. So I had to really kind of create my own smoke. So the demo thing weren't going. I gave demo tapes to everybody in the techno side, everybody on the drum and bass side. And people used to tell me the same thing. L, when you find your sound, when you find your sound, you'll be all right, you'll be rolling. I used to think, what the fuck does that mean? Find my own sound. Has anybody, everybody ever heard that? When you find your sound. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a fucked up thing because you can't help but make music like you. You pick up a paintbrush, you're going to paint like you. No one does what you do and vice versa. So you find your sound, you have your sound before you even start to produce your first ever track. You can only create your sound. You can't have someone else's sound, it's impossible. Everybody has their own sound. So it's just a matter of self-development. It's a matter of self-development. When we get to the point where you get your technique in the bag, where you can deliver good, sharp production that's effective with hands tied behind your back, blindfolded, do you know what I'm saying? It just becomes habit. You know what's needed as a builder knows yeah. what's needed to keep a house up. If you don't have this, it's going to fall down after a couple of years. Simple, do you know what I mean? So same thing. But yeah, back to the pirates now. So the first track's been released. I've teamed up someone by the name of Noodles. I hate to... I hate to give him props by saying his name because we're on a massive like breakup. Like we've, we're, since we broke up, we hate each other. It's one of them ones. Do you know what I'm saying? So he's not looking to give me any any promotion. I'm not looking to give him any. But he was the guy that took my demo tape and said, "Listen, what you've got on here is trash. But if we just make a few tweaks here and there, yeah. I reckon I can get some of this shit signed and we can make some money together." So we teamed up. We teamed up, and it was great while it lasted. He taught me everything that I needed to know about outside of the studio, the marketing and the branding. So um, yeah, that was the first track that came out, Groove Chronicles. So now I'm paying attention to the radio stations. That's bringing it back to the pirates now. Now I'm paying attention to the pirate radio stations. Now I need them. Yeah, okay. And which were the popular ones in your area? South, I'm from South. Always been around Clapham, Brixton, Streatham, Stockwell, Ballam, you know, that borough, that route. So there's never really been anyone that knows, old enough to remember, will, 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 will agree that there was never really been that many stations broadcasting from South. <laughs> as influential as South producers and DJs are, we had one in Crystal Palace, which I actually, one of the rare occasions I actually ran into a, a pirate radio station. Um, and there wasn't many that I knew about, man. Even to this day, most of them are in East. A lot of them used to be in West back in the day. Yeah. So were you coming up East to, to you know, listen to that radio and also try and get on there, like get your tracks on there? Well, I mean, no, I mean, we, we, there wasn't much we didn't pick up in South. Being okay. quite, yeah, being quite good. I mean, anyone that was above the river broadcasting, they were like here in this area. They were they were literally just above the river, not too far. So we were catching everything in South. Okay, you're still catching it. Yeah, unless you were else. in a really hilly area. That's that's all you had to worry about back in the day was being in a hilly area. You wouldn't pick up certain stations, certain areas. We picked up everything. I remember a bunch of them. You know what I mean? 
So I was listening to the first radio station I ever remember hearing was Sunrise. It was a station called Sunrise. It was London's first major station that brought dance music in 1988-89 to the streets, to everyone's attention. Um, way before the first break beats came into it, and you had the phrase hardcore. It was named hardcore, um, stuff like that. So from 88-89, it was the Rat Pack that kind of ruled that station, Sunrise. Uh, and then, um, I don't know, if we shoot forward a few years, you had Cool FM. Yeah, so Cool's one of the Cool FM ones. was the main one in London that came, I think they were broadcasting out east as well. That was massive impact for the drum and bass scene. And then uh, Garage Days now, shoot forward a few more years and you had stations like Girls FM, which was like really solid quality, great DJs, um, and clear broadcasting, constantly there and reliable all the time. 100% um, devoted to house and garage, if I'm, not, if I'm not wrong. That was really good. Solidly run for like two to three years and then all of a sudden just stopped. And but at what point did Rinse come in? Was Rinse important in terms of nah, repping the sound? No, this was before Rinse. Groups like Four Hero were like doing big things back then. I'd be surprised if anyone, you know, in their 20s or early 30s knows who Four Hero is now. That's probably just because they were so talented and they're going to have that respect that goes on for years, but they've been out of action for years. So I'm just trying to give you a, a time of when this was. What was the first time you got your tracks on the radio? I had a massive shock one day. It, it got to that point where I know we've got me and Noodles, Groove Chronicles, we've got our first white label on the street. And um, I know it's going around. I know it's at the distributors. I know it's gone to the record shops, so it's retailing at the moment. So I'm just waiting. I'm waiting to hear something. I'm waiting for someone to text me, yo, your tune's playing. And I'm waiting to turn on a radio station and hear it. Then all of a sudden, I'm walking through like a really posh area in Chelsea. And like a 60 grand Mercedes. Summertime, sun's blazing, everyone's out, you know, people act in this country when the sun comes out, and there's 60 grand like Mercs just cruises past me with the roof down, and it's thumping the new 12, it's thumping the track extra Oy. fucking loud. <laughs> and he's just feeling extra nice about himself, you know what I'm saying? There's me, I'm, I'm about three years away from even being old enough to own a driving license. Do you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. It, it's, that, it's that that hits hard like a sledgehammer, it's like, wow. That's kind of, and it's a weird one because that as well is like, what you see from him is like your eventual goal, well, not to have materialistic things, but one of like financially comfortable, shall we say. So your eventual goal is to get financially comfortable and you're sitting there without 10 pound in your pocket. This guy comes down Chelsea, blasting your track and there's no one around to witness this. And it's what you've been working for for so long. It's been your dream, like it's the, the stage one in your dream, all right. We're rolling now, you know what I mean? This is like, you know that feeling you get when, um, I don't know, you might aim a can into a bin from the other side of the room and bang, it goes straight in and stuff. That feeling that when you've put effort into doing something and it actually fucking works, you know what I mean? That like, wow, it is possible, do you know what I'm saying? It's, at that point, it becomes material, not just up here, like we can do this, do you know what I'm saying? So that's the impact, that moment was massive for me. And I knew it was coming, I'd just been waiting to see it. And, and were there certain DJs that you were given? At what point did they start taking your dubs? Because you said at first... Straight away. Straight away. I did not come into this music game to be any guy. 
I did not come into this music game to camouflage. I came in to be, like, bring my personality, as it's always been since a small child, the type to stand on top of the table and, and not care. And I don't embarrass easy. I, I want to stand out. I want to be loud, colorful. I want to be the best at what I do. Do you know what I'm saying? And apart from the egotistical side of it, I want to bring something to the music scene. That was the most of it. I want to bring, so it's like when someone comes up to me in a club and say, oh my God, Stone Cold, man, that tune for me and this and that, and whatever track it was that done it for them at that moment, the sparks and memories off when they hear it. I say, no, bless, bro, because that's what, first and foremost, I do this for. I ain't got no Mercedes parked outside just yet, but when people come and say that shit, it gives me a warm feeling, you know what I mean? That's why we do this shit, man. To be quality, to known as quality producers, so. I mean, I think we can yeah. all say Stone Cold is <laughs> our favorite song, surely. They're absolutely like legendary. Legendary business. Well, just quickly, like as an artist, painter, tiler, chippy, whatever you do as a craft, um, I think you would be the, the last person to stand there and say, oh, look at my work, and I'm fucking talented. You shouldn't be saying that shit, but you know, there's, the Stone Cold is probably one of the only pieces of work that I can say, like, I really enjoy it as if I never made it. What about the mainstream stations, like the traditional ones? Were you getting support there? Mainstream stations, yeah. Never had no problem with support. Music's been embraced by, I'm so lucky. Right, so now comes a different chapter in my life, skeeting off from the radio station thing real quick, whereas I've moved from um, producer, getting DJ work from the production. Through doing DJ work, I've learned about the club scene. Now I find myself putting on my own nights, successfully as well. Um, so it's like, I'm lucky, so lucky that in curating these nights, I have a massive plethora of artists that are influenced by my music that I can ring up and say, let's talk about you coming down to my night and playing a set. Yeah. This is the reason for me having such a, a wide range of DJs on my night, if you check out the night. South Circular, next one's 28th of February. <laughs> Lightbox. <laughs> Um, and when was the first time you appeared on, like, a pirate station? I've never DJed on a pirate radio station before. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, like I said, not the best person to talk to about <laughs> pirate radio stations, but one with a different perspective. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you think pirates are still important today, um, even with the internet coming through and uh, obviously streaming platforms? Yeah, when the internet came around, I was there to watch it from nothing to something. So you had the phone, you take the phone plug, the same, remember, do you remember internet when you had to, get the to plug it into the phone plug in the wall and sit there for days waiting for a JPEG to download, go across the screen like this. So I remember it from early days. And when it came through first time, I was like, yes. And then when iTunes put a little thing on there where you could like access internet radio stations across the globe, 24 hours a day, even if they were just on podcasts. It was a massive thing, man. It was great. I mean, I'm not sure if anyone bothers to fucking check it out, but you can go on there and just listen to, like, favela funk all day. Like, you're, you're just, like, tapping straight into Brazilian radio stations, man, that don't have that status chart that you have to compete with. It's crazy. Like, you just lock on to any of them South American stations or some of them African stations, man, and they're just banging some beats. That's how I keep the music 3D. Never listen to dance music in a house. LB does not listen to dance music in the house. That's how I keep my dance music production with more depth. I listen to jazz music. I listen to salsa. I listen to live band stuff and loads of vocal, loads of hip hop. 
that samples from Rare Groove, Motown, you know what I'm saying? Don't listen to electronical music. No dance music in the house? No, no, no electronical music in the house. <laughs> no, it's not a rule. It's something that's not going to... It's like, okay, I threw my TV out the window. I threw my Croydon Riot acquired TV uh, out the fucking window about three years ago, and life's been good ever since. So now I choose my viewing. So when you choose your own viewing, your choice is, right, do I veg out? Or do I choose my time to learn something? And it's the same in my music. It's the same in the music. It's the same in the music. When I'm listening to music in my casual time, I want to learn something at the same time. I want to be enlightened. I want my vibration in my body to be altered in the right way. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to be running at 44 hertz and shit and getting sick. So I listen to some Frank Ocean. <laughs> and a huge part of radio is community, of course. I think in like all the situations which, where I've been part of a station, um, the levels of community come out of, out of that. And also kind of, I think radio is very much a place where you can belong even if you haven't belonged to other places. It's true, it just shows how reflective just the pirate radio stations is on everything. Look, I remember the day, it was a joke, yeah? It was a joke back in the day, this thing called Delight FM. To me, all it was was a bunch of little ragged kids from around South, close to me somewhere, grew up on the baseline, the early ghost stuff that we put together because Garage was too flossy and chocolate boy and flowers for them, as it was for me. That's why I'd done the music in the first place. When they heard it, they was like, oh shit, we can lay some bars on this. And hence, Grime was kind of born. So now you've got this Delight FM thing. On a Sunday, they used to do this um, a live phone-in, unrehearsed, unbarred, no beeps. So anyone can call in and say whatever you want. If you want to ring in and go, you're all shit blood, get off the air. You can say that. That was the whole point of the Sunday calling. And these were a bunch of kids called So Solid. And no one ever heard of these motherfuckers. And it was a joke. It was a proper joke. But the station was so raw because people were ringing up and just going, you lot are all crap. Get off the air. And they were like, all right, thanks for the calling. Next. And they weren't retaliating. They weren't responding. They were just embracing everything, playing good music. And you got, it was a, once again for them, it seemed to be a good beacon a free, raw, to the point beacon of what the public thought of them. Because all they were doing was blasting their music. And now look at them. Do so you know it's what like I'm saying? In instant feedback. Yeah, now they're flag flyers for British culture. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, that's how bloody important it is, pirate radio stations. Thanks to all our contributors on this month's edition of The Hour. And thank you to everyone who worked hard to make sure 24-7 ran smooth. We're back next time with more documentaries, interviews and discussion. Until then, you can find our full archive of episodes at residentadvisor.net and via whichever platform you prefer to get your podcast from. Thank you for listening. <laughs>